0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: The city of Ottawa, residents, officials, police, you name it, they had braced themselves for the arrival of this rolling thunder protest this past weekend. There was a lot of concern that it would be a repeat of what that city saw back in February. So what actually happened? Let's find out. Laura Osman joins us now, a Canadian press reporter in Ottawa. Laura, thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Sydney. Thanks for having me. So what is the city like this morning? Everything back to normal? Yeah,
2: more or less things have calmed down quite a bit. A lot of the, like, special events, uh, rules that were put in place, road blockages, um, you know, no parking signs, those are on their way out and things
1: are sort of getting back to normal after kind of a interesting weekend. I'll bet. So what was the preparation like for the arrival of this protest?
2: Well, like, you know, Ottawa's no um, stranger to big protests. It's obviously a destination for that sort of thing, but we've never seen a preparation quite like this before. Um, you know, police brought in about 800 backup officers from RCMP, Uh, other police forces across the province to try to sort of bolster their force. They started setting up um, kind of like they were just kind of stationed at major intersections all throughout the Corps. They created a sort of a no-go zone around Parliament Hill for any protest vehicles to come in. At points, they had completely closed off those roads. They completely closed off highway off-ramps. Huge police presence downtown in preparation for this.
1: Okay, and that's very different than what we saw in February, isn't it?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, before the convoy protests arrived in February, a few years earlier, there was another protest called uh, United We Roll. It was very similar, big rig trucks coming into the city, and they were allowed to park right on Wellington. They came, they protested, and then they left after a day or two. And so I think police last time were expecting something similar, except, of course, that time they didn't leave. And so this time... No vehicles are being allowed into the core for protests. And that's a new rule that's going to apply to every protest from here on out, it sounds like.
1: Okay, so how did that go over with the protesters?
2: Well, they were upset at first before they arrived um, because they had planned a big motorcycle convoy that was going to go past uh, Parliament Hill. They still did their motorcycle convoy. They just weren't allowed into that no-go zone around the parliamentary precinct. Um, but certainly hundreds of protesters...
1: Hello? Oh. Sorry about that. Can you there. hear me now? Yep, I can hear you now. There you are. We lost you there for a second. So, you were telling us then, Laura, about the attitude of the protesters at what happened when they realized they weren't going to be able to do what they wanted to do?
2: Yeah, they were quite upset about that, but they were still able to do their motorcycle convoy, which they had planned to do in front of the Parliament buildings. They just took a different route. They weren't allowed in sort of that Parliamentary precinct area. Certainly still hundreds of protesters came to downtown. They just weren't allowed to bring their bikes or uh, big rig trucks. There was an incident on Friday where a convoy of big rigs, trucks, campers, tried to get to Parliament Hill, and that caused a big standoff between protesters and police just outside the parliamentary precinct. Um, Police had been trying to keep, they kind of knew they were headed this way, and they were trying to keep them out of the core, and they got, like, remarkably close in the end. And that's when protesters kind of rallied around the trucks, and then police with helmets and shields
1: moved in to try to move the protesters of the trucks out. Okay, and so I take it that worked then? It did. What They were able to
2: bring in the tow trucks, get the trucks out of there. They had to, um, I think in one case, they broke a truck's windows um, and arrested the people inside. Um, but for the most part, they were able to sort of push the protesters away from that area and push the trucks in the opposite direction and either let them leave on their own or tow them away.
1: Right. That's so different than, Laura, the approach that was taken, I guess, at the beginning of the convoy protest back in February. So how did the residents feel about all this?
2: Well, I think you know when we spoke to them yesterday, they were still kind of questioning whether people were going to leave. That was sort of the big question: Are they going to stay? Are they going to leave? And it appears that they are leaving. And now the question, of course, is, are they going to come back? It took a massive police presence downtown. You know, the closure of roads and highway off ramps, like it was a uh, quite an imposition and quite an operation for police. Like I have never seen that many police officers downtown since sort of the final days of the convoy in February, and so you know, what happens when they come back? You can't just have all those folks on call all the time. And you can't just have massive police operations happening downtown Ottawa all the time. So I think that's the question we're going to have for police officials today. And I think the question that a lot of residents are going to have,
1: are they just going to have to get used to the idea that this is life in Ottawa now? So how many people would you say, like, how big was this protest? I I would say it wasn't as big as the protest that happened uh, in February, um, but it was
2: still quite sizable. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, National War Memorial Monument. Yes. Um, The size of it is quite big. That was packed for um, sort of quasi-remembrance ceremony on Saturday. um, And then those protesters kind of moved to the hill They kind of took over Parliament Hill. People were sitting on the lawn and stretched out down Wellington Street in front of the parliamentary um, block. And so it was quite a big crowd. I would say hundreds of people, if not more than a thousand. And, um, you know, and it lasted for the entire day. And a few people stuck around the next day. So, you know, not insignificant for sure.
1: Right. OK, so then today is there going to be, do you think, some communication from Ottawa police? Are they going to talk about what happened over the weekend?
2: Well, we're really hoping so. We really want to hear from them how they think it went and we also want to know what are their plans for the future. They have these 800 extra officers that they kind of swore in for this um, for this protest and they've asked to sort of Um, keep them on call, as you were, until after Canada Day. And so the question is, what is going to happen between now and then that they think they're going to need these officers? And uh, and what's the plan for
1: after that? And who's going to pay for all of that is another question that we have. Those are all good questions. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for that this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Laura Osman, who's a Canadian press reporter in Ottawa, talking about the protests that happened over the weekend. Obviously very different approach this time around by Ottawa police and officials versus what happened in February, and they didn't want to be caught off guard this time. But, as Laura also pointed out, still some questions about the, not just the approach taken, but what does this mean for the future of protests coming into the city? Uh, clearly, still a lot for Ottawa police to talk about, and we will have more of that for
0: This is Mornings with Simi
1: a lot to break down this morning with the vancouver police department we'll start with what happened at the vancouver marathon over the weekend they actually delayed the start of the marathon by about an hour because of a suspicious device that was found along the route let's find out more about that joining us to talk about it this morning is sergeant steve addison spokesperson with the vpd thank you so much for being here
3: no problem so what happened what do we know uh, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you to everybody for their patience yesterday while we worked through this. We know a uh, huge inconvenience for everybody who had prepped and planned uh, for the marathon and half marathon. And, you know, when you spend weeks and weeks planning, training, get up early, do your warm-up, get dialed in, and then have to wait, it's a huge pain, uh, uh, pain in the butt for everybody. So what we had yesterday was uh, sh- uh, around shortly after 5 a.m., uh, a marathon volunteer who was walking near the half marathon route um, spotted uh, a device, a suspicious uh, device that was uh, placed near the front of Science World. And this is about the five, six kilometer mark of the half marathon route. Uh, that marathon volunteer did the right thing, called 911, uh, we responded. And uh, we actually had to d- deploy our emergency response team, our specially trained uh, explosives Uh, technicians. Um, What I can tell you is that it was a device that uh, we believe was purposely built, strategically placed along the route so that people would see it. Uh, It was built uh, to look like a bomb. Uh, I can tell you it contained a number of different parts and components, and whoever built built it, we believe, uh, meant for it to be seen and probably meant for it to uh, cause a lot of panic or disrupt uh, the race. Um, From the way it was built, though, Simi, um, I can tell you it was not capable of exploding, um, but the fact that it was built at all, uh, is extremely concerning. So we're working to find out more. We're working to collect evidence and to figure out who did this to hold them accountable.
1: Okay. So this clearly wasn't, oh, a backpack that was left by accident kind of situation.
3: This was very clearly, uh, something that was purposely built and strategically placed along that route. Uh, and we believe that it was placed there to, uh, cause fear, to cause panic and possibly to disrupt the race.
1: Okay. And so are you looking for more information? Anybody who might have seen something?
3: Yeah. So right now we're early stages of the investigation, evidence gathering stage. We don't have uh, anybody in custody right now, but um, our major crime section is investigating. Our forensic identification unit was out. We're doing the usual investigative steps, looking for witnesses, looking for video, and we'll do whatever we can to uh, identify the suspect as, as quickly as we can. Because uh, uh, very concerning behavior, and we need to find out who did this and why.
1: You know, Sergeant Addison, I was thinking too. Boy, how much has policing changed in a very short amount of time for departments like the VPD? In that you went from kind of pandemic policing to all of a sudden big crowd policing.
3: Yeah, good good question. It's been uh, it's been a couple of years since an event of this scale. I think it's been uh, two or three years since we've had uh, the BMO. Uh, event and we're now returning back to normal so we're getting more people coming into the downtown core we're starting to have larger scale events whether they be concerts hockey games running events the good thing is being a big city uh, we have lots of experience having done uh, olympics uh playoffs uh hockey playoffs although it hasn't been a while um and other large scale events <laughs> we're, we know what we're doing we're, we we've got a lot of experience and a lot of uh, a lot of practice doing this, doing this and although it's been a couple of years during COVID. Um, we know what to do to to hold and to host uh, large scale events and to do it safely.
1: You know, we were talking about what happened in Ottawa over the weekend, too, and the amount of overtime and the cost. And That seems to be something that a lot of police departments are dealing with when it comes to protests. Is there a lot more overtime costs for the VPD as well?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, we're stretched thin as it is, dealing with everything that's going on in the city, whether they just just the everyday calls uh, that our officers have to respond to. Um, On top of that, um, Vancouver, um, like other major cities, has seen a significant spike in the number of protests. Uh, Here in Vancouver, uh, as Chief Palmer has said last week, uh, we're certainly the epicenter for protests in British Columbia, if not in Western Canada. Last year alone, more than 800 protests. Um, many of them lawful, but also many of them unlawful as well. And when they do happen, they do require a significant police response. We just can't handle um, uh, uh, all of the extra responsibilities and and the things that we have to do to properly and safely manage a protest um, without having to bring in sometimes officers from home uh, and bring in extra resources to deal with it. Because when a protest happens, uh, even if it's a small protest, even if it's a, a small number of people, that are blocking a bridge uh, or a highway or a major piece of infrastructure, um, it requires a significant police re- response to be able to deal with it safely and effectively.
1: Is a staffing issue still a concern at the VPD? Like, are you fully staffed? Do you need more officers?
3: Oh, we're, we're always stretched in. There's a lot happening. We, we've talked about uh, whether it's protests or major events like the BMO marathon, um, the concerning number of uh, um, uh, violent incidents that we've seen. We've talked a lot about stranger attacks and the rise in violent crime. So we're always stretched thin, and investigations are becoming increasingly uh, complex, uh, not just on the front lines, but behind the scenes, too, and investigations take a significant amount of time and resources to do them properly. Uh, so we're always uh, we're always stretched thin, uh, but we're doing everything that we can uh, to make sure People are safe. To make sure we can quickly identify and apprehend offenders, and we've had a considerable amount of success uh, very recently in a number of high-profile cases in making quick arrests. Thanks, in large part, to help from the public when we've released uh, a video of suspects, whether it's be security video or other evidence. And um, it's really a, 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 an effort that we um, we work uh, we rely very much on the public to. Um, call us when they see something, call us when they see a crime, or uh, if we make that appeal to the public for help to identify an offender, uh, give us a call. And uh, we're having a considerable amount of success uh, of late uh, arresting in, in a number of high-profile cases.
1: Okay, so then to recap on that, then a little more perhaps public health on this particular case, which involved somebody early in the morning, uh, Sunday morning, putting something near Science World.
3: Yeah. So, uh, as I say, we're in the evidence gathering stage. Uh, Part of that uh, process, part of that investigation will be looking for any witnesses or video. Um, I don't yet uh, have an update on uh, the specific pieces of evidence that we've been able to collect. But certainly, if if we do have an opportunity um, to make a quick arrest or to uh, uh, identify the person responsible, we'll be moving on that as soon as possible.
1: All right. Thanks so much for your time this morning.
3: You bet. Take care.
1: Appreciate that. Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department in particular, we're talking about the fact that a a suspicious device delayed the start of the Vancouver Marathon yesterday by about an hour. And what they know is that this was not uh, somebody mistaking a backpack for something that looks suspicious. This is something that somebody deliberately was trying to cause an issue with. It was a device that, you know, had gadgets and things on it. And it was, they say, strategically placed along the route. And it definitely caused concern and delayed the start of the marathon while police did their thing. And now, of course, an investigation is underway. So we will have those updates for you.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: What are Canada's most trusted brands? Well, the 2022 Gustafson Brand Trust Index is out. I am a geek for this kind of data because I love finding out about this stuff. So it turns out that Canada's most trusted business once again is CAA, the Canadian Automobile Association. After that comes Band-Aid. Yes, Band-Aid. Then Costco. Also in the top 10, you've got President's Choice, Dyson, Shoppers, Mountain Equipment Co-op. So just those, those names that you're kind of used to hearing at the top of the Canadian Trust Index. But what about the other end of things? Which ones are seeing a decline in your trust? Let's find out. Well, joining us now to talk about this is Saul Klein, Dean of Uvic's Gustafson School of Business. Saul, thanks for being back with us.
4: It's my pleasure. Good morning, everyone.
1: What did you find most interesting in this year's Brand Trust Index?
4: Yeah, we've seen some trends continuing, certainly exacerbated during the pandemic. The key one is the big tech brands took a real hit in terms of our trust. And it's it's kind of surprising because we're using them more and more, whether it's Amazon, Google, Apple. Those brands are becoming larger and we've certainly seen dramatic increases in their stock prices, albeit with a bit of a decline recently. But at the same time, Canadians seem to be losing trust in those brands. And that's been fairly consistent over the last four or five years. Part of it, we think, is that we're just worried that they're getting too big, too powerful. And we're starting to see the antitrust regulators pay more attention to them. We're worried about the extent to which they may be abusing the information we have, we're concerned about a lack of privacy. So, the big tech um, brands has, have been the big surprise this year.
1: Interesting. Okay, what about grocery stores?
4: Yeah, grocery stores continues to be the most trusted category, and we saw that very much coming out of the pandemic, where these the workers in the stores became regarded as essential workers, and grocery stores seem to have responded particularly well. Now, ironically, it's part of a trend where um, eating out fell dramatically during the pandemic. And we've seen those changes in behavior. But grocery stores really have stepped up to meet the challenge.
1: Okay. So what I also found interesting here, Saul, too, is that the the most trusted brands were different, whether it was age, gender, region, but the distrusted brands were similar.
4: That's right. There's, if we look at it, The only brand that is trusted across all age categories is the most trusted brand is CAA. Other than that, um, when we look at distrusted brands, they're common. So massive distrust in social media, and that's been declining consistently over the last seven years. But it doesn't matter what age group you're talking about, they all distrust the social media brands. Where we've seen some differences is in a brand like Apple where younger consumers seem to be losing trust while older consumers are holding steady with regard to that. And that's in our view, is a bit of a worrying trend for some of those brands because it's today's younger consumers are going to be the dominant uh, buyers in the future. So we really put particular attention on uh, looking at the trust from the younger group.
1: Interesting. So what other kind of age differences did you notice?
4: Well, we saw some other brands where... Um, Younger consumers really lost trust. Spotify would be a good example. So you may recall the whole issue about Joe Rogan and Spotify being criticized for supporting or platforming um, anti-vaccine um, sentiments. But that didn't carry through into the older consumers. So it's again, it's an example where younger consumers are much more sensitive. Their, younger consumers also pay more attention to some of the more purpose-driven brands, brands like Patagonia, who are position themselves very much ar- along the lines of a strong environmental focus, very responsible organization.
1: Hmm, interesting. And you found that consumers are also taking what's called greenwashing pretty seriously.
4: Absolutely. And that's a phenomenon we're seeing more and more of, whether it's through ESG um, claims for investments but also in terms of brands' actual performance. And the good example this year, well, I'm not sure it's a good example, an example of that this year was Keurig, where they had been claiming that their pods were easily right. recyclable and uh, they were caught out on that and they took a real hit in trust.
1: So people pay attention to those things, clearly.
4: For sure. I mean, I think there's a broader phenomenon that we, we care more about the impact that our brands the brands we buy are having on society. And if we find that the brands are not being truthful or honest with us, then they pay an even stronger price than if they didn't make those claims to begin with.
1: Now, Saul, I know you've been doing this for a while now. Are there lessons in here every year when your brand trust index comes out? Like, what can businesses take away from this?
4: Sure. If we look at the, the big trends, we've seen that the focus on reliability, quality remains very high. The concern with so customers' well remains high. But the one thing that's been dramatically increasing, particularly around the pandemic, are the broader, more socially responsible things that we call are more authentic to a brand's identity, the extent to which the brand treats, um, respects, and protects environments. environment. During the pandemic, we also saw the importance that, brand, that consumers attach to brands treating their employees well. Those value-based elements are ones that we think are going to become increasingly more important as the key differentiators for brands in the future.
1: It really highlights how much people are paying attention, isn't it? Like, they're not just spending their money willy-nilly. People care about where they spend their money.
4: Absolutely. And I think brands are starting to recognize that. Another good example, and this isn't something that we collected the data on, is it happened afterwards. But if you look at that flood of exits of brands from Russia after the invasion of Ukraine, I think within the first two weeks, more than 500 global brands had pulled out of Russia because they didn't want to be associated. Um, And it had nothing to do with their immediate profitability. In some cases, they actually gave up sales and profits of quite significant amounts in Russia. But I think they were feeling the pressure both from the employees, and investors as well as consumers that this wasn't the right thing to be doing and that was tarnishing their brand.
1: Do you think consumers have become much savvier then?
4: For sure. I think we pay much more attention to these issues. And it's the broader phenomenon is that we want the organizations we we do business with to be playing a more positive role in society.
1: And I noticed that packaged food brands also had some trust that had eroded over time.
4: Yeah, we saw a little bit of an interesting phenomenon earlier in the pandemic, where as people were staying at home, eating at home more, that there was a bit of a a short-term burst of increase in trust in packaged food brands. That's kind of come off a little bit. Um, The one we saw drop quite sharply was Kellogg's. And We think it had something to do with some of the uh, strike actions and labor unrest um, or the criticisms from the labor side in the U.S., but it might also be a broader phenomenon around eating healthy becoming more and more important again.
1: Such interesting stuff. Saul, thank you once again for joining us.
4: My pleasure. Hope to chat again next year. Of course
1: we will. That is Saul Klein, the Dean of University of Victoria's Gustafson School of Business. Every year they put this out. This is the their brand trust index. Taking a look, they've asked Canadians, thousands of Canadians across the country different questions about brands that you trust, brands that you don't, why is that? And then they kind of break it all down. And they found that Canada's most trusted business, and this went right across age groups, gender, regions, you name it, it was the Canadian Automobile Association, CAA. And also in the top three, Band-Aid and Costco. And further in the top 10, companies like President's Choice, Dyson, Shoppers, Mountain Equipment Co-op. So yeah, lots of difference there depending on age, but in terms of companies that we distrust, a lot of similarity. Because it turns out we more and more distrust those big tech companies. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I've always wondered about this next question of what does it take to be a Cirque du Soleil performer? And a lot of people wonder that, especially getting a chance to see one of the shows. You can't help but think that. Well, our Raji Sohal did just that over the last few days and joins us now. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simmy.
5: Wow, this was an incredible experience to check out Cirque in person again. Of course, this is the first time I've seen something like this since before the pandemic. Oh, and by the way, everyone I noticed uh, under the big top was masked, which I thought was really fantastic. Um, but as much as I watched uh, the Cirque du Soleil performance of Alegria, I was also watching other people's reactions and I cannot have been the only person who spent the whole time, Simmy, like quietly whispering words of encouragement to the acrobats <laughs> while they performed cute. These just impossible looking tricks. You're like, land it, land it. Oh gosh, get it. Yes. And you know, the, the gravity defying stuff that they do, it just has you on tenterhooks the whole time. And everything happens so fast that it, it's like magic. There's no time to figure out how they do any of these tricks. And I, and I was thinking the whole time about what does it take? What does it take for one of these performers uh, in terms of training and the years to do something that looks so impossible? And I met this one performer, an acrobat in his late 20s, called uh, Vincent, Vincent Lavoie. And he's actually from Montreal. So he grew up with like, you know, because Cirque is in Quebec, it's made in Quebec. He grew up and knowing about it from a young age, but his first performance just really uh, hooked him that he ever witnessed.
6: To be a part of Cirque means realizing a childhood dream. I was 11 when I saw the first um, version of Alegria and it really made me fall in love with not only performing, but um, Cirque du Soleil. I was at the time uh, involved in gymnastics um, classes. So it showed me something on TV and on stage that uh, related to what I was practicing in the gym. So it's years and years of training that you see every night perform on stage.
5: Yeah, of course, it's years and years. It's also repeated performances. So Simi, Vincent Lavoie, Has done Alegria close to 470 times, give or take a few uh, performances because he got COVID over winter, but 470 times, he thinks.
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) Does he hurt himself? Like, how does he stay limber? How does he make sure he stays in great shape?
5: So I'm touching wood. He's actually never had a major injury um, he says, you know, they do extensive training before they they go on stage. Obviously, with a performance, but then also throughout all the performances, that is practice itself. And you know, you think that it would all feel like routine by this point, but he told me that because of his his role in Allegria, he's super lucky in that his role is unique because he gets the freedom to make it a little bit different than the prior performance because he does uh, some very difficult acrobatic routines, but then. He also does some routines that are just more um, free flow, so he's able to switch it up. But I can't even wrap my mind around doing the exact same thing almost uh, that many times in a row. And I I asked him, like, what has kind of uh, what would surprise people in the audience to know you what goes on behind the scenes for them. This is what he had to say.
6: What the audience is, isn't seeing from their seat is that backstage, we were enjoying each other's company, uh, whether it's at work or outside of work, we travel to a bunch of different cities throughout the year. So we become um, really good friends and almost like a second family. That's who you're going to go out and explore the city with. So it's a very tight knitted family or relationship that you share with your co-workers that maybe the audience isn't seeing.
1: You know, see, that doesn't surprise me, Raji, because I, either, I yeah. can't even imagine the level of trust you have to have in the people you are performing with because of how intricate and how physical this is that they're doing.
5: Totally. And I said that to him. I said, you know what? I actually see the opposite. I see that you guys are very close, that you have to count on each other. You depend on each other in every single move. So you must be close because we see that on stage, actually. And you know, this new allegria, it contains actually some choreography that features side-by-side trapezes that need to be able to rotate around the stage as well. So you've just got all these rotations, they're way up in the sky. And I was trying to wrap my head around the challenge of all of that when you have this, these people doing really big swinging moves on them as well. And you have to have a level of trust for what the other person is doing and a trust in your gear that is just uh, so next level. You know, as a risk averse person myself, Simi, I found myself, you know, cheering them on, but also thinking, huh, here's something I would never want to try. Especially Amazing. when I saw someone doing the splits inside what they call a German wheel. And I saw someone doing a, a, a human tower of three levels. And then the top guy goes upside down and balances weight in a handstand on the very top of this human tower. Again, I was like in, just
1: blown away <laughs> by
5: all of it, but going, hmm,
1: not yeah. going to try that at home. There's a reason why, right? People go every year and they are astounded. Uh, Raji, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Jimmy. So, Raji Silhal talking about Cirque du Soleil and what it takes to be a performer there. Nothing but respect for people who tackle that.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: All right, let's talk about those changes to the Police Act that we heard about that were recommended by B.C.'s Legislature Special Committee on Reforming the Police Act. There's a lot in there. Uh, We spent some time talking about that last week. Now, the B.C. Urban Mayors Caucus has released a response to those proposed changes. So let's find out what some of the mayors are thinking about this. Joining us now is Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria. Thank you for being here. Uh, thanks
7: for the opportunity.
1: Well, this is a big change. Some of these proposals and recommendations that are in here. So, what do urban mayors think about this?
7: The BC Urban Mayors Caucus participated in the uh, in the engagement, and we made a detailed submission uh, to the to the special committee. And we're very happy, as our statement that we released today says, to see that uh, that some of the calls, all of the calls that we've made, were uh, ended up as recommendations. And and you know, as as you would imagine, uh, all of our uh, Areas whether we're RCMP or uh, municipal police are spending way too much money on policing because our police are spending way too much time uh, responding to mental health and substance use related calls and so for us, that was I think one of the key things that came out in the report uh, is a recommendation for a better Uh, integration of um, health and policing, and particularly there was a great, this is probably a bit too policy-wongish, but there was a great diagram in the report that shows sometimes All that's required is a civilian-led response and no police. And then on the other side, sometimes, of course, police are required and then a recommendation for something in the middle. So we were very happy to see that reflected in the recommendations because this is a key issue facing all of our communities.
1: Are you confident that hearing that and seeing this in the report that we're on the right track to make these kinds of changes?
7: Yes um and there's a couple of pieces of evidence one is an announcement from the provincial government a few weeks back for um Victoria and New Westminster uh, along with North Vancouver to have a pilot project for packed teams, peer-assisted crisis teams. And so the province is already, I think, dipping its toe into this kind of response, even while the special committee was still doing its work. These are small pilot projects in three cities, um, but I think there is an interest from the province. It, it's just, it's better for everyone. It's better for, from a cost point of view. It's better from a health outcomes point of view. So I, I these recommendations are going to take a while to implement, I we're seeing positive signs already.
1: How would you how do you see that would work? So somebody calls 911 and then what happens at that point?
7: Then uh, the 911 people, so eCOM would need to be trained to ask uh, a little bit more detail about what exactly is the situation. and uh, then just like now when they call it you know police fire or ambulance, it would be police fire ambu- ambulance or mental health response. And instead of no one responding or the police responding, there would be that kind of that fourth tranche who would say, okay, mental health response and then the appropriate services dispatched. That will take a while to set up. But I think that is that's certainly what we recommended in our and and good to see that reflected back in the recommendations.
1: And what are you seeing happen in kind of the downtown area of Victoria that makes you think that we need this?
7: It's not so much, well, I, I mean, I, I can, I'll can. i tell you what I'm seeing, it, 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 but it's also just what our police are doing. So it's it's what we're seeing, but it's also, you know, we, we, we get reports at, at the police board about, you know, the, the calls for service that are being generated. And a lot of the calls for service that are being generated aren't crimes. And so we've got these very expensive, well-qualified people, our police officers, um, responding to things that are not criminal in nature. So there's there's that, um, the, the data that we see. Uh, and then, you know, w- what we're seeing is, the, and again, we touched on this a bit with our uh, Prolific Offenders release, um, the same people cycling in and out of jail, into our streets, back to court, and... Some people, you know, they are committing crimes and, and should be held accountable and put in jail. Um, some of them need a different response and they need a health response. And so this change that's being recommended um, from the Police Act Special Review Committee, when implemented, I think it will have a profound difference, again, on our streets, but also for the people who are negatively impacted by this, this revolving door, this endless cycle.
1: OK, so in that case, then, if the pace that we're going at, is that fast enough, do you think, to deal with this?
7: It will be very interesting to see how the province uh, implements these recommendations. There's certainly a lot in there, and uh, our commitment and our way of working as the BC Urban Mayors Caucus has been to roll up our sleeves and work alongside the province. So while things like creating a uh, provincial police department will take a very long time and, and probably a good decade, which is when the RCMP contract expires anyway, things like integrated 911 dispatch, I think, could be done sooner. So my hope is that the province prioritizes those kinds of things, like the integrated 911 dispatch works with our local police departments and us mayors to maybe create a few pilot projects in a few parts of the province and see what works and what doesn't, and then scales it up and rolls it out across British Columbia.
1: Do you support the idea as well of that, uh, the idea of a provincial police force rather than having the RCMP here?
7: Uh I I suppose so I mean that that's hard for me to answer because we're policed in Victoria by uh the Victoria Police Department so that that wouldn't necessarily have an impact but I think there is strong rationale for um if for example, and this was really compelling in the report, uh, comprehensive training so that every police officer who's trained in this uh, province has anti-racism training, anti-bias training, uh, all, all of the things that were recommended. So I think conceptually it is a good idea um, to have cohesion in the province. And I think over time uh, it will probably be more cost effective as well.
1: Right. So what are the next steps here then? What would you like to see happen? Uh, what I would like to see happen and I think what our
7: caucus would like to see happen, although we haven't met yet as a caucus since uh, the report was released, so we'll gather on Friday and uh, and make some recommendations. But I think what we'd like to see uh, is the province to prioritize these recommendations because there's a lot in there. So number one is prioritize. Number two is engage directly with us, with the BC Urban Mayors and the uh, UBCM on anything that's going to directly affect local governments. And then let's get to work and implement implement some of these things that are kind of the low hanging fruit that'll make the biggest difference in our communities the most quickly.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. That's Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria, talking about the BC Urban Mayors Caucus, of which she is a part. And they are coming out and talking about the the report that we saw last week from the BC Legislature Special Committee on Reforming the Police Act. So the Urban Mayors Caucus is saying, listen, we support this. We like this. They believe the report definitely highlights an urgent need to shift to policing services from the police respond first approach to more of a health-centered approach. And that requires a lot of training, right? As Mayor Helps pointed out, that means that the people who answer the phones at Ecom have to know, is this something that we're sending police out? Is this a crime in progress? Or is this something somebody who needs a, a mental health wellness check? What kind of situation is this? That's a real rethink of the way we do things now. But clearly, we need to do things differently out there to get a different outcome than what we are seeing.